I know a lot has been written and discussed both at the national and local levels about so-called nature deficit disorder, that not enough youth, not enough city folks, not enough of us in general are making it out to parks, whether they're national parks or local parks. I mean, how much of an issue is this and what is the National Park Service trying to do about it? I think the the term nature deficit disorder that Richard Louv uh, coined uh, is a concern for us. Um, uh, I think what's the, to me, I always look at things more on the optimistic side is that that we know that, that being in the outdoors and having an opportunity to experience nature has all kinds of positive benefits. Uh, it, uh, it spurs the imagination. It has health benefits. It has this rejuvenation aspect uh, to get us away from the, our very, very busy lives. It often, uh, I mean, one of the analogies, if you walk down a city street, uh, in a busy city street, people avert their eyes from each other. But if you walk down a trail in Rocky Mountain National Park, people say hello. Right? So there's something that's going on there about creation of community and relationships between nature and people, uh, both in terms of also families, an opportunity for families to gather in nature uh, presents an opportunity for them to reconnect in this kind of environment. And it breaks my heart that there's a large component of our society that are not take, taking advantage of that experience. And so part of our uh, mission is to reintroduce the public to this opportunity that is a, that is incredibly cheap, uh, in many cases free, uh, and there are all these great benefits of it. So the entire parks community, national, state, local, regional, city, uh, are all into this right now of creating uh, authentic experience, natural experiences close to home uh, that will be perhaps a threshold experience for them to then go and explore beyond that to the great national parks that this country set aside. So what are some examples of that? So you're saying not necessarily driving 10, 12 hours, taking a plane flight to Yellowstone or wherever else, but actually enjoying sort of open space parks in local areas? And I'll give you a perfect example. We're in the process of developing the largest urban campground in America at Floyd Bennett Field in New York City. Uh, here you can have the opportunity to camp. And this is not Occupy Wall Street. No, it is not. <laughs> this, is, uh, this will be an opportunity to camp at Jamaica Bay, uh, you know, within uh, 30 minutes of uh, uh, the international airport, uh, but to see the skyline, and, but to hear birds and uh, experience nature right within New York City. Uh, you can now camp in downtown San Francisco within uh, Golden Gate National Recreation Area. Uh, we're we're going to have thousands. You hear a lot of Grateful Dead music. <laughs> so I would imagine these are also patrolled because some of these areas, you know, maybe people don't even walk in at night. They're pretty, they have oh, yeah. pretty we, dicey. Golden we Gate have Park uh, our law enforcement folks, and we work very closely with the city law enforcement, so they'd be quite safe uh, for this kind of experience. It's not the bears they're worried about. No, no. And that's, uh, I mean, you know, and that is one of the concerns people have about uh, being in the dark. I mean, we have kids today that we take out They've never seen dark. They've never heard quiet. Wow. Um, uh, some kids that are growing up in Los Angeles have never set foot in the Pacific Ocean, uh, never walked on the beach. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, and the experience can be transformative to them uh, just to give them that kind of chance. And so getting kids to parks, uh, whether they are urban parks or, or rural parks, is really a critical component. So... We're investing a lot in transportation. 
Uh, we're working a lot with schools. Uh, you mean pub free public transportation from Linkages, hubs? so public transportation is a perfect example. So like in New York City, we're working with the city of New York to figure out how to link up public transportation to get people out to Jamaica Bay or Floyd Bennett Field, because right now it's, it's complicated and difficult. But more importantly would be working with schools who don't have much money is to give transportation grants to schools that they can then use their buses and their bus drivers and their substitute teachers to bring kids to parks. Uh, and then we're ready to receive them, but a lot of times they just don't have the money. And that's where we're, I'm working with my National Park Foundation to build transportation grant programs for schools to get kids out to parks. And I noticed another example of um, some incentives on the financial economic side is um, isn't there some fee waiver for national parks as of next year for some people yeah we um, we have uh, the national parks first of all uh, if you look at it in terms of cost are quite inexpensive I mean you can get a uh, an annual pass for 80 bucks will get you in all national parks for free for the entire year I mean that's a, a heck of a deal if you're over 65 you can get a lifetime pass uh, our golden age passport that will give you the free access to national parks for the rest of your life. Um, um, so they're very inexpensive. Um, but we're also promoting a number of fee-free days. I think we have 17 free free days next year we just announced. Uh, so there are periodic days throughout the year where uh, parks will be totally free. And during the day. <laughs> during the day, absolutely. And to what degree is the root of the problem nowadays generational? and or socioeconomic. In other words, you know, unfortunately, not as many, or proportionately not as many African Americans or probably Latinos go to national parks. May not be the case with local parks, but to what degree, yeah, is it cultural, social, socioeconomic? I think it's all of those. I mean, I think one thing is that, you know, we are seeing our visitation, you know, either drop slightly or flat, but we're still at 285 million visitors. So it's, we still get a lot of visitation uh, to our national parks. Uh, and we still are a major draw internationally. We get 60 million visitors from around the world to come to the national parks of the United States. However, we're not seeing uh, a representative de dem demographic of the United States international parks. So there are certain communities uh, Latinos, African Americans, in some cases Asian Americans, that are not coming to the national parks for one reason or the other. Uh, and we're trying to understand that. Um, and part of it is, is socioeconomic. Uh, uh, they may be, you know, both adults are working, they may be working two jobs, uh, they may not have transportation, there may be a lack of knowledge, uh, and there may have not been any, any personal experience in their upbringing mm -hmm. uh, with uh, these public lands and these great national parks so that the parents take their kids to what they're familiar with. And so, and, uh, and there is also a lack of, in some cases, uh, understanding that these are uh, available, they're inexpensive, and there may be not enough information of how to do it. Um, and so we're investing all of that kind of information. And we're focused a lot on young people to build a new generation of young people that are connected to these places as well. And what's an example of how you're trying to make inroads and are making inroads? I know mean, you mentioned grants to schools, but what are some examples and where? Well, we have a number of programs that are specifically related, related to young people, particularly in the sort of teen up into you know, early college, you know, 20-year-old kinds of things. We have a lot of youth program in that area. And 
And then we are highly encouraging them to use social networking uh, to tell about their experiences, to share that experience, you know, through photography, through blogging, all of that. And then they will, that will spread, you know, just like it does with all other kinds of things in terms of social networking, of creating a community around these kinds of experiences that will draw young people to come uh, and experience the national parks. So on the other end, institutionally, is the National Park Service uh, taking quite a hit from, I mean, you said numbers are fairly flat, but not an increase in number of visitors at the same time, times are not exactly flush in Washington. So to what degree is this a problem financially for for you, for the organization? It's not a financial issue, uh, frankly, at all. I mean, you know, the Park Service collects about $160 million a year in fees. Uh, we're a $3 billion uh, organization, so fees are not... I mean, they're very important, and the great thing about our fee program is that 100% of the fees that the public pay to the National Park Service go directly back to us. They don't go into the treasury and disappear. They actually are used at the local park for uh, a program and particularly improvements to facilities and access. 80% of the park fees are retained at that park, so Rocky Mountain National Park collects, I don't know how much, but 80% of that money is retained right at that park. 20% goes into a pool, and that is used by our non-fee parks. We have a number of parks that don't collect any fees. They need to, you know, share in this. So uh, we have a very uh, open and transparent program about our fee program, and so the public can actually see their fee dollars at work uh, directly there. You know, the, the you know, small variability that we're seeing in, fee, in visitation of, you know, 2% or 4%, it doesn't affect that in any significant way. Mm-hmm. And when you see an increase in, say, kids going to, or in inner city kids using local parks, mm-hmm. does it translate to then going to and appreciating the bigger, farther away national parks? And, and does it matter from your perspective? Well, I think it matters a lot. I think that uh, the, I have a, a strong interest in urban parks uh, because I think it is a threshold experience for them. Um, I think uh, that's why we started... Uh, a new uh, design awards program for parks, for urban parks, uh, in cooperation with several universities like the University of Virginia. That uh, So we've just awarded our first set of designs this last year uh, about um, urban parks that incorporate a component of natural as well as, you know, landscape design as well. And we're seeing some extraordinary new kinds of parks appear in urban landscapes that I do believe that that uh, if there is the follow-up knowledge that something greater than this exists and I can that they can go do that. In fact, it sounds like we, what you're saying is for those of us living in or near urban areas and not way out in the, the boondocks, that in fact it's really essential to connect with this not totally wild but kind of hybrid wild managed space in the local areas to reconnect with nature at all. Well, what's fascinating about that is that was open knowledge 100 years ago. When Frederick Law Olmsted designed uh, Central Park of New York or the green belts around Boston uh, and actually created a, a, a park design for Los Angeles that they never implemented, uh, he understood this at a, at a core value that, that urban populations needed these places uh, for all of these benefits that I've talked about. We kind of forgot that over the last hundred years or so. So now there's a real opportunity to reinvest uh, in urban parks that create these communal spaces, that create this opportunity 
But what, the new opportunity is to link that intellectually and in some cases physically along river systems to the larger big natural parks that are out there as well. And what, what kind of statistics do you have or what, what are you showing based on the research and observation that the, the service is doing? Well, I don't think we have a lot of quantitative research on this. Uh, most of it's anecdotal, but uh, I certainly get a lot of email or notes from people that, uh, you know, as a result of some childhood experience or some opportunity within an urban environment, uh, they, uh, they come away uh, with this, you know, discovery that this is out there. I mean, I've, I've heard this, and particularly for the programs that we've invested in, young people that... Um, uh, like uh, we have a program that our superintendent at Death Valley created called Death Valley Rocks, uh, <laughs> which uh, uh, taking kids from the urban environment of Los Angeles, even kids that are, you know, uh, prone to be involved in gang activity, and bringing them to a place like Death Valley, and their eyes open up and they say, "Oh my God!" They see the Milky Way for the first time. Uh, they see wildlife. Uh, they see. They hear quiet, and they go back different. You know, they go back completely different. Uh, and, uh, and one of the things that we were trying to do as well is they go back to their own community and they say, how come I don't have, any, I don't have a park in my community? And uh, then they become community organizers and we have staff that can assist them. And through a variety of different kinds of urban park programs, we can help them build a park. Maybe there's a, uh, an empty lot. Maybe there's a, you know, a, a red field that could be converted to a green field. Uh, all these opportunities to build a park in their own neighborhood and take ownership of that park, uh, have community around it to, to create community gardens, all that kind of stuff. And then, that, and then they see that long-term relationship between what they have in their community and what they have as an American citizen that they also own, which is our national parks. And is um, First Lady Michelle Obama's campaign, Let's Move, having, you know, giving quite a boost to the Park Service's efforts to get people outdoors particularly outdoors and parks more. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it was great that uh, First Lady Obama uh, launched her Let's Move initiative. Uh, it was principally focused around nutrition and just generally being active, uh, you know, whether it's uh, physical education programs, uh, just doing exercise, being active and get up off the couch. We brought to uh, Mrs. Obama the concept of Let's Move Outside, um, which is a component of Let's Move, and that is really the extra benefits of, of actually having physical activity in the outdoors as well. And so she's been uh, a great supporter. We've done a number of events on the lawn of the White House and over on the Anacostia in Washington, D.C., and in Las Vegas, Nevada, and a variety of places where uh, Mrs. Obama has been in front of this. And then what we did is, like in the National Park Service, we have a... Uh, uh, junior ranger programs. So you go to a national park and kids can come in and there are a number of things they have to do to in order to be certified as a junior ranger. How old do they have to be to start? Oh, they can be... Out of the womb. <laughs> yeah, if they can walk and talk, then they can uh, they can become a junior ranger uh, and with assistance from their parents. But most of these kids, and we have these kids that they're just so into it. I get uh, letters that, you know, I've done 100 junior ranger programs. Well, some of these and many of these junior ranger programs have a physical activity component. So we've been certifying our junior ranger programs under the Let's Move Outside uh, so that mm. the kids are actually doing a physical activity as a part of becoming a junior ranger. So that's linking it to the overall efforts of, uh, of Mrs. Obama. So they have to prove they can climb half dome before they get their 
Well, Golden maybe Star, not all, but some of them are doing Half Dome. Half, absolutely. That's great. So it's pretty successful? And I think fact, it's very successful. And in fact, to what degree are these kids, not just these junior rangers, but sort of kids getting outdoors more, the ones that are actually maybe pushing mom and dad to get off their butts and get out there more? Well, I think there is, a, there is this really fascinating sort of shift going on where uh, I think, you know, for, for most Americans that use our national parks today, sort of the boomer generation that are coming to our national parks and have been coming, they were brought by their parents. Uh, you know, post-World War II, it was a very strong effort by the National Park Service to connect our World War II veterans that were coming back to the outdoors. You know, the mom and pop in the, in the station wagon, you know, there's some huge promotion campaigns during that period. And so kids got that experience. And I've had people walk up to me at this conference and say, that's what I did. I was in the back of that, that station wagon, and we went to the national parks, and that's what we did for our vacation. Um, we've seen a precipitous drop-off of that kind of approach. Uh, but what we're seeing today is, by our outreach to kids, is they're bringing their parents. Um, our work in the Central Valley of California of reaching out to uh, uh, a very large Hispanic population in the Central Valley and connecting with kids offering them an opportunity to come to Sequoia or Yosemite that they literally are bringing their parents uh, to the parks now and uh, for their first time experience and it's it's fascinating and wonderful to see. Interesting. So at this point you've been well with the National Park Service more than 30 years right? About 35. Seems like yesterday. (laughs) It goes by fast. (laughs) And as head of the National Park since 2009 right? Mm -hmm. That's correct. At this point given all the changes, all the bipartisanship to be euphemistic going on in Washington. What what makes you most worried right now? Well, I think there are a number of challenges uh, in front of us, but I, I have always been a glass half full kind of guy. I'm, I'm always optimistic. I think that what uh, gives me optimism is that the National Park System, the 395 units of the National Park System and uh, units defined as much smaller areas that aren't necessarily the big national right, parks. Too, right. Right. Yeah. I mean, we have a lot of people don't completely understand uh, that. You know, we have the big classics: the Grand Canyon, Yosemite, and Yellowstone, and all of those. But we also have, uh, you know, women's rights, Brown v. Uh, Brown versus Board. Uh, you know, all of the Civil War battlefields, the Alamo, revolutionary right? battlefields. We do not have the Alamo. <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, we have Flight ninety three. Uh, you know, we have the Selma to Montgomery. Uh, we have uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church, Martin Luther King's Church. Uh, you know, we have rivers, we have trails. I mean, we have a whole myriad of, of we're in every state except Delaware uh, and, um, and may soon be in Delaware because there is a proposal for a new park unit there. Um, if you look at that in aggregate, the Park Service has responsibilities of not only protecting the very best of the natural resources of this country, but also the essential American experience, whether it's civil rights or civil war or um, the Japanese-American internment during, during the Civil War. And the power of those places uh, and the stories behind them are really the story of what it means to be an American and what responsibilities we have in this country and why we are trying to become a more perfect union. And so I think the Park Service has a 
more so than any other institution, has a responsibility uh, to carry this story, carry this mantle, and help all Americans understand their responsibilities as citizens of this country to both protect the environment, because we, we created this idea. We, this is, as Wallace Stegner said, was America's best idea, to set aside these places, which in the rest of the world would have been set aside for only the elite. We set them aside for all Americans. Every American, regardless of their socioeconomic or ethnicity, can stand on the South Rim of the Grand Canyon and experience that. And that's unique. That was an absolutely unique American concept. And that we would set aside these places of incredible historic power uh, and that we would learn from them, that we would set aside Manzanar, a place where American citizens were deprived of their, their civil rights interned in prison camps during Civil War, I mean, during World War II, uh, that we would talk about that openly and, and tell that story both for Japanese Americans as well as for all Americans and its relevancy to today uh, is, is very, very powerful. And I think that there's a great deal of optimism. One of our, <clears throat> we're the only federal agency that has a responsibility to provide enjoyment. Okay, it's in our mandate, right? Who would figure? Yeah, <clears throat> and if you go back uh, to our founding fathers, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, okay, we have a responsibility to help that, that core value of Americans. And so uh, I'm optimistic that by elevating and reaching out to kids and being involved in education and providing these extraordinary places and being good stewards of them, uh, we can help this country. And one other thing, which of all the places do you think is most in jeopardy now? I mean, you mentioned being at the North Rim or the South Rim of the Grand Canyon. We also want to be able to see across that canyon and into the canyon in another few years and decades, and that's severely jeopardized. I mean, lawsuits included, but over air pollution from coal plants and and whatnot. What's being done about that at the National Park Service level? Well, I mean, there are a number of challenges across our national parks uh, air quality in the, the Grand Canyon, climate change, sea level rise on our coastal parks, uh, the Everglades. Uh, I, you know, I think among our big natural parks, I think the Everglades is probably the most threatened. Uh, you know, it has incredible numbers of exotic species that have, have uh, become, uh, uh, you know, resident, and, you know, whether it's Burmese pythons or tropical fish or uh, you know, other plant species that have moved into the glades. You have the water issues, the water flow, water quantity, water quality, distribution, uh, the growth of uh, Miami-Dade County, all of those kinds of things potentially threat this absolutely unique in the world system. Uh, we're pouring uh, enormous amount of political and funding effort into the restoration of the Everglades, but it's still a big challenge. I mean, we're, you know, and... Uh, Two billion, right? Uh, yeah, well, not all, you know, I don't know what the total figure is, but it's a lot of money. Um, but, you know, we're still, I mean, like on the tour we, we led yesterday, you know, for every bird that you see, you sh- there should be nine more of them. We're at one-tenth of the bird population that should be in the Everglades and uh, uh, what was here historically. And so that's the opportunity. And that's, and we, you know, there's a kind of this issue of environmental amnesia is that we forget what it really should have been. 
And I think the opportunity that we have in the park system through restoration is to remind people of how extraordinary this environment really was. But there, yes, there are, there are challenges across the system uh, and that, we, uh, that we take on every day. And you'll keep your job for a while. <laughs> I'll certainly keep busy. <laughs> right. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Susan.